1: You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by this week's fabulous birthday boy, the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi Dan and happy belated birthday. How did you celebrate? I went out to dinner with my parents, but I live my life by Price's
2: Right rules, Leslie, so by Price's Right rules, it's closer to your birthday than mine. So happy birthday to you as well, Leslie. You are
1: wrong. You are so- <laughs> <laughs> I do not subscribe to that theory. No, once
2: once it's you, your, you get it's still once, your
1: birthday week and it is still your birthday month. So today is
2: currently, as we we're recording this, the longest distance until my next birthday. Ergo, it is closer to your birthday than mine. Happy birthday, Leslie.
1: Ergo, your birthday was yesterday. So. Enough with your air goes.
2: I live in the present. Just take the
1: praise, Dan. Happy birthday. Praise?
2: Why does that Enjoy. How is that praise? I didn't do anything to achieve this particular (sighs) honor. I just got a year older. Anyway, happy birthday, Leslie.
1: Oy (laughs) vey. Where do we go from there? I have no idea. You you got us here, my friend. <laughs> no,
2: you started this. You started the whole birthday thing. I'm just uh, I'm just evading my birthday. If you'd rather talk about near no hitters, that's fine too.
1: Yeah, I do have a little bit of a baseball hangover. I was at the the Tyler Anderson game, uh, Dodger game this week. Um, he was two outs away from a, a no hitter, closest I've ever come to seeing one in person. Um, it was awesome.
2: Oh, I saw um, Kurt Schilling, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, nearly (laughs) throw a no hitter against the A's about a decade ago. And I think that was nine. I think that was eight and two thirds innings. It was that one was right on the edge. And again, he didn't do it. And, you know, that's fine. At the time, I would have really enjoyed it. Now I would feel guilty about enjoying anything associated with Kurt Schilling. Yeah, same. Yeah. You know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, enough baseball talk. So we've got a lot of. Podcast to get to. And as usual, we're going to kick things off with headlines.
0: Number one,
1: Leading off in new series orders, Billy Crystal will return to TV and star in the Apple Limited series Before about a child psychiatrist who recently lost his wife when he encounters a troubled young boy. Elsewhere, Cobra Kai star Peyton List will lead the cast of the Paramount Plus young adult series School Spirits, which is based on an upcoming graphic novel of the same name.
2: On the renewal front, HBO Max has picked up a third season of Hacks and a third season of Rose Matafeo's Starstruck. The Lincoln Lawyer has been renewed for a second season at Netflix. Apple has picked up a second season of the Kevin Durant series Swagger. Apple has picked up a second season of Schmigadoon. This one set to take place in faux Chicago in the 1970s. Amazon has renewed The Boys for a fourth season, and Amazon's freebie, that would be Free V, the artist formerly known as IMDb TV, has revived American Rust for some strange reason. That would be the Showtime series that was canceled after one season, and it's back. So anyway, several of those uh, things are associated with people we've had on the podcast, eh?
1: That's right. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah, you can go back and listen to our interview with, with Rose from episode 161 back in March about season two of Starstruck and, and, of course, the future of the show. In overall deals news, The Big Bang Theory co-creator Bill Prady has returned to Warner Brothers Television with a deal after spending the past couple years at Netflix. And former NBC boss and Handmaid's Tale exec producer Warren Littlefield has extended his overall deal with Disney.
2: In casting... Michelle Yeoh will star in the Netflix drama series The Brother's Son. Supergirl veteran McCod Brooks will fill the void created by Anthony Anderson on the upcoming 22nd season of NBC's Law & Order. And Carlos Valdez, best known from The Flash, will star opposite Mae Whitman in the Hulu musical Up Here.
1: And wrapping up headlines, newly minted EGOT winner Jennifer Hudson's syndicated talk show will launch in September. And has hired three alums from the Ellen DeGeneres show to serve as showrunners. So, yeah, it's uh, Warner Brothers kicking right over to from one show to the next for fall.
2: And anybody who got to enjoy the experience of watching the Warner Brothers Upfront presentation already has at least some sense of what Jennifer Hudson seems like as a syndicated talk show host. The answer is okay, but anxious to sing. So we'll see if it becomes a Kelly Clarkson type thing where they basically try to find a way for her to sing as much as humanly possible. And why would you not?
1: Yeah, fair question. I mean, you have an EGOT winner coming out with a syndicated talk show like it's good timing.
2: Number two.
1: Up second, we're going to talk more about award season. This week, the nominations for the 38th Annual Television Critics Association Awards are out and Surprise, surprise. It's a broadcast show that leads the pack. Dan, you want to take it from here?
2: Absolutely. That would be uh, the broadcast show in question would be Abbott Elementary, which was nominated for five TCA awards, which is a lot. It was nominated for, among other things, uh, Achievement in Comedy as a series. It was nominated for Program of the Year. It was nominated for New Series. Uh, Quinta Brunson was of course nominated for individual achievement in comedy and in a, you know, probably the closest thing to a surprise there is Janelle James was also nominated for individual achievement in comedy. No problems with that because she is incredibly funny on the show. There were a lot of other multiple nominees. So you have Better Call Saul, which received four nominations, and then a pair of new shows, Severance and Yellow Jackets from Apple TV Plus and Showtime, respectively, received four nominations. And, uh, you know, as always, the TCA nominations are, you know, spreading things out. But a lot of those Shows are also nominated for Program of the Year. The nominees for Program of the Year, which is the overarching, not necessarily best show of the year, but show that dominated the headlines, show that represented the year, however you want to put it. Those nominees include, well, they don't include, they are Abbott Elementary, Better Call Saul, Hacks, Severance, Squid Game, Succession, The White Lotus, and Yellow Jackets. Um, it is a... It's an amusing assortment of, of nominees, I would say. Um, my, my editor, John Frosch, has already expressed minor disappointment or confusion about multiple nominations for the final season of This Is Us, but. Lots of critics like This Is Us, I suppose. And, you know, everyone likes Mandy Moore. No one doesn't like Mandy Moore, who is nominated for Individual Achievement in Drama. Uh, lots of nominees this year. I definitely feel as if the TCA board decided to expand the number of nominees. So on the the Individual Achievement in Drama side, there are 10 nominees, um, including entirely predictable people like I don't know, Amanda Seyfried, Jeremy Strong, etc. A couple little surprises that confuse me a tiny bit, like Adam Scott for Severance. I don't think he's bad. I just don't necessarily know that I would put it as one of the 10 best dramatic performances of the year. I'm happy to see Margaret Qualley nominated for Netflix's Made. Always happy with Ray Seahorn being nominated for things. Always happy with Bob Odenkirk being nominated for things everybody's always happy when melanie linsky of yellow jackets is nominated yeah. for things um so so yeah lots of lots of those on the on the comedy side we actually have there are a bunch of uh tv's top five veterans in the individual achievement in comedy field where you have uh Pamela th- Adlon. Well,
1: three i think right four uh, to- no we've never had sudeikis no,
2: we have not had Sudeikis. We've come close to having Sudeikis multiple times, but have had him on a total of zero times. So season three of Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis, uh, it feels like you're welcome. Uh, anyway, Challenge so, yeah. extended. So yes, Pamela Adlon, who is, of course, a multi-time TV's top five guest, uh, is nominated for Individual Achievement in Comedy, as is, as mentioned, Quinta Brunson. as is Bridget Everett for Somebody Somewhere, also have Bill Hader. The aforementioned Janelle James, Steve Martin was somehow determined to be the one only murderers in the building nominee, which I guess is fine. Gene Smart, who was last year's winner in this category, she's nominated again. And Jason Sudeikis, as mentioned, needs to get on this podcast because clearly that is what it will take for him to win the individual achievement award. Clearly,
1: clearly what it will take.
2: It's the the best that I can imagine. Uh, so,
1: so Dan, before we you know look, these nominations have been out for a couple of days now. But I'm I'm really curious. You know, f- for you, I know Pamela Adlon's nomination was one that you really really were excited to see because when we talked, when we were filling out our individual uh, nominations forms, that hers was a name that came up. I think when I said you know like what are your thoughts on the on the nominations, and the first thing you said without missing a beat was Pamela Adlon. Uh,
2: You know, I, A, I love Better Things. That is well-established. Very well-established. B, B, Better Things and Pamela Adlon are friends of the podcast. Uh, You should definitely all go and listen to the Better Things series finale wrap-up podcast, which is truly one of my favorite things that we've done. And I'll give you two seconds to dig that up in your master document. When was that, Leslie?
1: Um, That was from episode 166 and mid-April. Sorry, end of April.
2: That was a standalone episode, so you didn't have to deal with baseball talk or headlines. You just got all interview all the time.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like like an hour plus of Pamela Adlon, which come on.
2: Yeah, it was it was totally crazy. And once again, I apologize for my failure to sing in Yiddish on uh on short notice. No, I'm always uh I always favor as much as humanly possible in these individual categories the people who wear as many hats as possible. I I understand it's not entirely. Fair, but still, my tendency is always going to be towards a Pamela Adlon or a Quinta Brunson. Uh, you know, the people who are creators of the show, producers of the show, sometimes directors, et cetera. So, somebody like Bridget Everett, yeah. Bridget Everett, who, uh, you know, she was was on my ballot. I got, I have zero objections to her. Uh, someone like Bill Hader, you know, who does all of the things and does them exceptionally, also very clearly. Um, worthy there. It's harder to find people on the drama side who are in the same category for whatever reason. It's, it's just less of a uh, creator driven market. And so you look at the people who are nominated in the drama, individual achievement and drama. They're all simply actors and. Simply actors. Sorry. Apologies to the actors out there who think that their profession is not, in fact, a simple profession. You are, you are absolutely correct about that. Um, it is a complicated and, and deep profession. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good assortment of nominees. Mostly, mostly things don't perplex me, which is sort of always what i always what i base my feelings about the tca award nominations on is are there things that are inherently perplexing or confusing uh and so there i would say there are fewer kind of utterly random things like the number of times that we've had uh Standal- that we've had standalone limited series as outstanding new program when technically I don't think they should be eligible. This year, we only nominated one. It's the White Lotus. And even that one comes with an asterisk because there's going to be a second season. So it's a limited series for awards purposes, but it's a lie. Uh You know, that's how that's how these things go. But yeah, so otherwise, as I look over the list, the number of things that actually actively cause me to scratch my head is is very very few it's something like i don't know the tinder swindler on in the outstanding achievement in news and information category that's that's idiotic but i'm not going to get into that Uh, you know whatever if if people liked the tinder swindler that's Fine. Uh but for the most for the most part, I, I think it's actually a pretty reasonable list of nominees and I look forward to seeing how people are gonna vote because I think there are a lot of very, very, very wide open races, including program of the year where I don't instantly know what is likely to win and some years you 100 know going in you know oh of course it's going to be yes, this is a tad lesser whatever. yeah mm-hmm. the, this this year definitely feels like it's wide open and so yeah. that makes it fun
1: absolutely you know personally i was really happy to see yellow jackets and melanie melanie linsky get nominated reservation dogs another show that we've had yes. uh, its creator sterling harjo on the show that was nominated for outstanding achievement in comedy very excited about this um and you know uh, I'll rant a little bit, and it's not just because this episode was sponsored, but uh, absolutely had nothing to do with that. But um, literally found out about that right before we were about to record. But I'm bummed that We Are Lady Parts didn't make it in there. So, you know, it's, I really felt like, you know, that that it had a good chance. There was, you know, some, a lot of critical support going for it. Uh, it remains one of the standouts of the past year. And I don't know, maybe it's just a too, too niche of a show on, on a platform that's still not uh, not that big.
2: Yeah, I would I would guess it is exactly those two things. I would I would guess it is probably a little on the, the niche side, and also you know, the the outstanding new program category is fairly packed, and so you know, the nominees there are Abbott Elementary, Ghosts, Only Murders in the Building, Pachinko, Reservation Dogs, Separance, the White Lotus, and Yellow Jackets. That's that's a, a good group of, a good group of nominees, a couple sort of head scratchers, if you were to think in that in those terms, is how on earth is Squid Game nominated for all of the things Squid Game is nominated for, but it wasn't a new series nominee. That That's one of those things where sometimes voters, and I know certainly I do this as well, I, I think sort of in terms not necessarily of spreading the wealth exactly, but we only get to write down four names. And so... Probably in that category, I put down four things that weren't We Are Lady Parts or or Squid Game, and neither one was meant in any way as a slight. I believe the listeners to this podcast know that we're at least pro on We Are Lady Parts. I don't I don't believe we've given much indication on our feelings about Squid Game, and that's okay also.
1: Oh, we probably will do that next, but uh, before we get to that, just a quick rundown. HBO and HBO Max wound up leading the pack among all platforms with a combined 21. Netflix came in second with 13, followed by Apple with 10. And uh, in the meantime, there's still a couple of, of big winners to be announced. Uh, the Career Achievement Award and the Heritage Award will be announced later this summer. And if you are a member of the TCA and this is still something that you can, I don't know, weigh in on or consider, consider Queer as Folk. Not the Peacock series, but Russell T. Davies' original series and even the Showtime update from way back almost 20 years ago. So both deserve to be recognized for their ability, for what they've done for LGBTQ representation on television.
2: And either they were nominated or they weren't. We simply don't announce the nominees for Lifetime Achievement or Heritage. Well, that's who I submitted. And that's
1: honestly, I can't think of a better year for, for that recognition. So there's my ballot.
2: We'll see. Number
1: three. Up third this week, let's talk Squid Game. This week, Netflix officially renewed Squid Game for a second season. And the biggest news, of course, not that a second season wasn't already expected, but the streamer unveiled a reality competition series based on the hit South Korean show called Squid Game, The Challenge, which will see 456 real-life players compete in a series of games for a record-setting $4.56 $4.56 million cash prize. Dan, what could go wrong?
2: Well, the answer is nothing. And that's probably where the problem is. I said of this on Twitter, and I truly believe it. If people aren't getting killed, then you shouldn't call it Squid Game. And incidentally, I don't think you should do a reality show about people getting killed in order to win large chunks of money, because that would be reflective of capitalism run amok. And guess what? That's the entire point of Squid Game. And Netflix continues to over and over and over again. Not exactly miss the point, because that would imply that they don't know what the point is. They're simply willfully ignoring the point of the show, like when Reed Hastings wore the Squid Game tracksuit for some shareholders' call or something. And yeah, I, I mean, look... People like the show because it's people dying in scary and terrifying ways, and it's exciting and thrilling. But it's not really the undercurrent of the show that capitalism and economic inequality force people to do horrible things where they're willing to put their lives uh, at stake to win money while rich people cackle and bet on them. That's the show. That's what the show is about. The show is about how capitalism does horrible things to people and people are willing to kill or die simply to survive because that's what capitalism does to people. That is what the show is about. That is not the subtext of the show. It is the text of the show. So turning it into a a tawdry reality series is both completely predictable and a really good way of being oblivious about themes. It's a little bit like if you uh and this is I'm going to make a, a really, um you know, wide, widespread mainstream reference here. It's a little bit like if you were to do a reality show called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And it turns out it's just a a dancing competition with J. Lo as host. Um it, If you don't, if you do not know. They shoot horses. It's a great movie. Everyone should watch it. But it's also about desperation, sadness, and the extent that people will go to in order simply to survive in a world that is weighted against them. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much my primary thought on this, is that this is both an entirely predictable thing for Netflix to be doing and... A IP pred- thirst, yeah. IP thirst, and basically, probably, this is something that they'll be able to get on the air Long before the second season of the actual scripted show. So it'll, it'll spread things out and it'll keep the Squid Game dream alive. Uh, but it's stupid. And I, I don't like people perpetuating things that miss the point of the thing that they're perpetuating as completely and totally as this misses the point of Squid Game. So whatever, enjoy. Anyway, I'll have to watch it and review it. And guess what? I can tell you in advance, I'm annoyed by it.
1: Well, you said it well, man. I I got nothing to add. (laughs) Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment.
2: Number four. Our guests this week are Alan Yang and Matt Hubbard, creator of Apple TV Plus' new comedy, Loot. Alan is an Emmy winner for Master of None, while Matt is an Emmy winner for 30 Rock. Together, they created Amazon's Forever, which, like Loot, starred Maya Rudolph. Welcome to the podcast, Matt, and welcome back to the podcast, Alan. Thanks for having us.
3: Good to be here. Excited to be here.
1: So first, let's just have you guys identify yourselves just for our listeners so that they can know who uh, they're listening to.
3: Uh, This is Alan Yang, uh, one of the co-creators, executive producer, and director of Loot. Uh, I am Matt Hubbard. I am the co-creator of Loot
0: with Alan.
1: So let's start at the very beginning here. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of the series? You know, was was this kind of the thing where Matt and you had an idea of said this could work for Maya Rudolph, you know, or how much of this was was you guys saying we want to do another show with Maya? What's what's good for her? What where do we see her going?
0: Yeah, it was all that. You're exactly right. Um, We had done another show with uh, Maya, and we absolutely loved working with her. Like, as Alan said, like, none of us are crazy. We just all love, you know, just, like, working together and really respect each other. Uh, So, yeah, Alan and I were kind of casting about for a really great, meaty role for Maya to play, and we wanted, obviously, to put her at the center of uh, a comedy. While that was in our heads... We were both reading a lot of articles about billionaires uh, and about, you know, I I really like thinking about how much they affect our lives on a day-to-day basis and how obsessed we are with them, especially in America. I don't, you know, it almost feels like they're our royalty or something. So I was reading a lot about that. I was very interested in them. And those two things kind of came together uh, in our heads. And I texted Alan, what if Maya plays the wife of a billionaire and he cheats on her and she gets divorced and she's left with nothing but $87 billion. Right. Uh, And that, I think we both immediately were like, Oh, I get why that's funny. I get why she can play vulnerability. I get why this is a world people are interested in. We felt like her moving into the charity space was like a really relevant, interesting thing where there would be a lot of people there who did not, hold her views you know uh and i think it all just kind of worked and she liked it and we went from there
2: well people are going to immediately go to melinda gates to Mackenzie scott etc how much would you say this was actually inspired by those real life instances and how much would you prefer that people not make those direct leaps
3: Yeah, I think people will discover if they watch the show that this character of Molly Wells is nothing like those women because (laughs) I think those women are pretty accomplished and uh, self-assured and confident and educated and knowledgeable and kind of more aware of the world than Molly is so it's very much a character of our own invention and especially one that we wanted to design to make use of Maya's strengths and to play towards comedy and also as Matt said uh, to show some vulnerability and and have a a cogent emotional journey along the way Um, but we also want people to know that no matter what you watch in the first few episodes this is not an uncritical look at billionaires this is not billionaire worship or anything this is not saying that they're that they're perfect by any stretch of the imagination so um you know if people get to the the, the end of the first season i think uh there's a little bit of social commentary we like to say it's 95 97% comedy and 3% social commentary <laughs>
2: How did you land on what the correct percentage was between those two things? Uh,
3: mainly because I don't want to watch a show that is a sociology or economics textbook. <laughs> That's <what I> mean. <laughs> If you want to read about that, read Anangira Doradas or Tomas Piketty. Uh, read, read, read one of those books, but uh, don't don't watch this show. If you want to have fun, watch this show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but on the other hand, were there situations of extreme wealth that either you guys read up on in research or brainstormed in the writer's room that seemed like such a a pinnacle or maybe nadir of conspicuous consumption that you guys were actually in the process of writing and going, yeah, okay, fuck it, eat the rich. That's, that's what this is about.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I always bring this up. There's the house that Molly lives in in the show is called The One, which is a sort of famous house in Los Angeles that is I believe the biggest house that's ever been built in the continental United States or something. It's like 100,000 square feet. Uh, When they finished building it, they tried to sell it for $500 million and no one bought it. Uh, And it was actually available to shoot at. So they took us up there and they're like, this is the kind of place where a billionaire lives. And Alan and I walked in and we were immediately like, this is it. This is Molly's house. Now the house... Is in some ways incredible. There's four pools, there's a nightclub, there's a bowling alley, there's a juice bar with 20 seats. I was like, why are there 20 seats in the juice bar? Uh, You know, anything you could imagine is in there. So, on some level, it was cool, but on another level, it was obscene. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like, it was like, why why is this here? Th- this doesn't make sense. This is not how human beings live. And, and to really, honestly, for me, walking through that house clarified some of my thinking about this world. Because it, it is, it's like, there's something interesting about it, but there's something wrong about it, you know? And I think that is great for a comedy, right? We want that. Like, we want those contradictions. Um, so, yeah, that... Seeing how these people actually lived was was eye opening. <laughs> well, how much
2: access did you guys actually have to the house? Were you were you actually filming there what where was the filming actually taking place vis-a-vis that ridiculous house
3: we were there for a while in fact uh Danny, we were there long enough such that we not only shot it for her house there's some easter eggs where we used the one for other locations that's how big the house was because it had so many different looks there's a room that's just a room for candy that sits outside the private home theater that we make use of in the pilot um like like hubbard said There's parts of the house we didn't even film. And we were there for, I believe, over a week just shooting that house and um, a crazy outside uh, area. And, you know, that first drone shot of the house is like, okay, you get kind of a sense of the scale. It looks like the Getty Museum or something, but like a somewhat lower taste version of it, I guess.
2: Are, Are there rules regarding how you can depict that house and how grotesque or grandiose it is?
3: Yeah, I think they basically were having the house up for sale. And so we caught it at a very specific period because I think we were thinking about going back there at some point and then the house got sold or the house was so so. So it was it created some production difficulties. But um, we were fortunate to be blessed with uh, a great crew and and production staff and and, uh, our art department built some other rooms for the house on stage. So we had a combination of rooms in the actual house where you'll see like the skyline and you'll see some other rooms that were actually built on stage. But it's a it's a great composite, I think.
1: For an ongoing series, losing a, a location like, like this place sounds like it would be detrimental to a second season. Have you th- given any thoughts of what you would do should the show come back
3: well you
0: sound like our line producer who was like do you guys really want to do this are we (laughs) thinking this through um yes so that was something we thought about but it was such an incredible location we knew we had to paint the world there so we built some of her rooms on set in the house i think has been sold to someone and i I think there's a chance we'll be able to get back there. Good news about billionaires is they have many, many different houses. So I think if we have to, we'll put Molly somewhere else, but, uh, We're not sure yet. Yeah,
3: That was actually one of the unexpected difficulties in the show is people who own the locations and props and jets and yachts that you want to use for this have no need for money. So you can't rent them because they don't they don't want your money. They have no need for it. So it's actually very sometimes very difficult to deal with the owners of these properties because they just they're like, why? Why would I why would I ever rent this out for for a film shoot? So um, that was that was one of the difficulties in shooting the show for real. And what was the
2: answer? Because, I mean, if you were to say, if they were to have asked you, what is this show that you're making? Your answer probably would have been something along the lines of, well, it's about this woman who lives a horribly, grotesquely wealthy life. We thought your house was exactly perfect for that.
3: Can we use it, please? So what uh, did you that do? Being, uh, that being said, uh, people still think it's cool to have their stuff on TV. So like, yeah, our house is on TV. <laughs> I think that literally is the answer for some of these places. It's like, cool, that's my house. It's on TV. I think Great, yeah, literally ego. that's the answer. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. Scott.
2: So on a scale of front of our minds at all times to back of our minds, and we tried not to think about it, how generally conscious were you about doing a show critiquing capitalism for a country that for for a company, rather, that for many people is the embodiment of global capitalism in 2022?
0: Yeah, that that is something I think that we both uh, recognize the irony of, you know, for sure. And I think Apple does as well. Uh, I don't think we were talking about this all the time because we just wanted to do the show and say the things that we wanted to say about late stage capitalism. I will say about Apple uh, in a very positive way, they never questioned anything we wanted to say about these companies or how much they affect uh, our lives and I think that's one of the reasons they have been so successful in this TV space under a, re- in a relatively short amount of time. I think Apple TV Plus has only existed for like three years or something at this point. That they are truly, truly trust their creators to tell whatever story we want to, uh, you know, even if it's maybe not exactly what their corporate corporate policy would dictate they want us to say. Um, yeah, and it's like, look, like if we want to do any TV show, to some extent, we need to get into bed with a giant conglomerate. There's no way around that unless Alan and I funded ourselves and we don't have that much money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah,
3: that's one thing. We, we definitely were aware of the irony of like, well, look, you know, where are we going to make this show? We're going to make it at Apple. We're going to make it at Netflix. We're going to make it at basically a huge, giant corporation. Um, the alternative to that, because a television show is expensive, is to self-finance or shoot it on our iPhones and... To make a show like this uh, on your iPhone, look—you can make a great movie with your iPhone. It's not this show, you know. It's it's just not this show. So, um, you know, we were fortunate, as as, as Hubbard said, to uh, to find a partner in Apple who understood what the show was about and uh, was was game to 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 roll with the punches in terms of the critiques of the ultra wealthy.
2: But as you were contemplating what the signs and signifiers of great wealth were. Was there any part of going through your mind where, like, okay, well, maybe for the ultra wealthy, getting the new iPhone early is is a signifier, but we don't want to do that—that that kind of thing. <laughs>
3: uh, that we we actually had, God, I forget what this was. I, I I this is maybe an apocryphal story, but I'll I'll say it anyway. I don't remember where I heard this. It's totally unfounded. Maybe it never happened, but I heard a <laughs> literally a story where. I believe it was Ellen DeGeneres, but I heard she was like had a problem with her iPhone. She's like, hold on one second. And then she called Steve Jobs and was just like, hey, I need to fix this thing. I like that was the kind of story that inspired us. We didn't use that in the show, but we thought it was funny. You know, that's why she has David Chang as her chef and she hangs out with Oprah and all that stuff. So that that to us was the more comedic version. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I if we want to do jokes about Apple, we do have to run that by Apple. And the other thing is everything that like is a screen of like a phone or a Mac. Macbook or whatever is accurate. That stuff they do care about which is whatever, right? That's that's probably par for the course.
1: Yeah, that's been something that they've been very keen on since they launched Apple TV Plus was to make sure that the portrayal of technology was as accurate as possible. And I know mean, we've talked to a couple other Apple showrunners about the same, so it's interesting to hear it that it, it trickles down to to a comedy that's not even, you know, about like technology or set in space or anything else like that.
3: Yes, exactly. We they don't want the wrong screen on the iPhone, which that's fine. I mean, it doesn't inhibit our creativity really, I don't think
2: was there any point that that felt odd or off i mean cuz you know it's not the same as having someone listening to their music on a zoom you're not you're not doing something that's utterly ridiculous and out of keeping for this
3: world so <laughs> No, not at all. I mean, they have iPhones and they're texting each other. It really was like, what's the shape of the text bubble? Oh, that looks right. You know, that's is not, not, not anything horrible. It's like, oh, what what iOS are they using? It's like, yeah, it's totally fine. It's, this, it is, it's modern it, times.
0: It is interesting to do a show in modern times. Like, because, you know, obviously we want the show to reflect uh, the way we live our lives now. You know, it's set now and it's like people text so much. They FaceTime so much that it's like, that's how we communicate now, you know. So it's like it. We spent so much time, you know, having them text each other, look at the screens, make sure they were right, make sure the test texts are right, and it, and it it is just sort of like an inter- interesting. It's almost like a challenge of how to write a show, which obviously you want to be about human connection at all times. You know, when you when there is this sort of layer, you know, that uh, that we all use now. And sometimes yes. hide behind,
3: by the way. you Yeah, know? and uh, it's, it's yeah. very annoying to shoot, but I, it, did, it did make me laugh. You can't get away from it. I mean, I don't know have you, if you guys have seen Top Gun Maverick, which is a very good movie, but uh, there is a scene or a couple scenes where Maverick, Tom Cruise's character, is texting Iceman, <laughs> played by Val Kilmer, and it says, like, Ice, like his name is Ice <laughs> in the phone, first of all. Then also when they're texting each other, always complete sentences with a period at the end i'm like that's not really how people text it was like but you know it was like i need to see you period and it's like i yeah. i can't i don't have time period and this was that was i wasn't asking period it was just such complete sentences yeah. it really made me like then again those guys are in their late 50s so maybe they are that was yeah, what i was going to say is, is honestly how do you
2: how do you think tom cruise honestly texts
3: with a lot of exclamation points. <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 All from stand, standing. I, I think he text standing on top of someone's couch, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't I'm think. I don't think Maver- from-
0: yeah, I don't think Maverick cares about punctuation. He's a maverick. He's, he's a maverick. Gonna- <laughs>
3: he's throwing qu-
1: upside down question
3: marks. He's sending voice yeah. memos. He's a rebel yeah. man. That's like uh, very great. good movie. Very good movie. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys have done a number of shows now for streaming, and that's been where you guys have been focused for a couple of years. But of the shows you've done for streaming, this is the first one that to me feels like really, it very much could have been a broadcast show if that's what you'd wanted to do. Is there something subversive about doing a broadcast show in streaming space?
3: <laughs> that, that's I, I'm really glad you guys pointed that out because I, I, to make a music analogy, this is almost like... I feel like in some ways we've gone so far in the half-hour comedy space in terms of pushing o tourism, pushing something cinematic, pu- pushing something that really challenges the guys, which I love. You know, to- I totally respect that. You look at these amazing shows like Atlanta or I May Destroy You or things that are really pushing the format, right? And at the same time, sometimes, and and again, with all due respect to those shows, which are amazing, groundbreaking shows, and I they're 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 amazing, like. Sometimes you want a show that is a different feel. It's a different feel. It's almost like a back-to-basics feel. So that's literally something we talked about when making this show. Obviously, Matt and I have worked on a lot of workplace comedies, including Parks and Recreation and 30 Rock. And for us we had that feeling that we'd like to see a show like that. We have gone through a pandemic, an insurrection, a recession. Gas costs $50 a gallon. It, it feels good to watch a show. You know, that's what we felt. That's honestly how we felt. It was like, let's make a show that is warm, that is optimistic, hopefully is funny, makes people laugh, and still has a little bit of thought behind it, right? It has some ideas and has some energy behind it. So that was very conscious. You know, we've done a little bit more aggressively experimental shows, whether it's Master of None or Forever or Little America. I mean, they're, format-wise, a little bit more aggressive. This one, we really felt like we wanted to do something more like an original sound to go back to the music metaphor, back to back to what we had done in the past, and and also make it an evolutionary version of that if that was possible. So that was a long answer, but we really did think about that and consciously did that going into the show.
1: Was there ever, ever a point where this was a, something that you— actually wanted to make for for a broadcast platform? Obviously, you guys have, both have, have uh, very important deals um, with Universal Television and a big part of that studio is not just selling to streaming, but supplying content for for NBC.
3: I uh, I don't think it was ever networked. Uh, I think it was basically like, unfortunately, a show like this, in terms of the scope of it, may actually be difficult to do on a network schedule. So with the locations and with the format we had uh, in terms of our our shooting and our, our schedule, our pattern was not really a network pattern. So you'd have to make compromises. I'm not saying you could never do it, but we initially came up with this as a streaming idea. And, you know, who knows? If we're fortunate enough to do future seasons, the feel of it can be flexible, right? Like it's always gonna be at its heart an ensemble show with the heart of it being the interactions between these characters but the streaming format platform allows us to be more experimental should we choose in the future.
0: This is another like little gripe I have about, I mean, I love, obviously grew up on network shows and wrote on them for many, many years. One thing that's so tough with broadcast now, and this sounds so simple, but I do think it's true, is the time restriction, right? Like that 21 minutes and 35 seconds that you have to get everything done, uh, is 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 sometimes really hard, uh, and I think you have to have a show for it to work uh, on broadcast that is taking that into account from the get go, right? And I think we knew this show was going to have a lot going on in the pilot, a lot of different characters. Were we going to be at home or with her? We were going to be at work at her. So it just felt like what our ambitions were for it that it would make more sense in the streaming space where you have a little more uh room to breathe hopefully not rope to hang yourself but yeah room to breathe
2: (laughs) we started with the idea that this was something where you guys were trying to find a way to work with maya again and that was initially how it was announced was okay this is maya rudolph apple tv plus Did you guys know that it was going to be kind of backdoored into a workplace comedy? Or is that just the way your sensibilities gravitationally flow at a certain point?
3: Yeah, I think that was all part of the creative process. I think it was us talking about this idea and talking about this world and what the most compelling way to do this story was. And honestly, what's a way that for us worked as a television show. And I think we were fortunate enough also along the way To be able to cast it up with, frankly, actors who should and were have been the leads of their own movies and shows like that's how strong the cast is, in our opinion. So um, it was kind of a combination of us talking it out, talking it out with each other, with Maya and figuring out what's the version of this that feels compelling to us, feels like in some ways a, a warm welcome to the audience and also Um, allowed us to get across our ideas about this world. So it was kind of a combination of all those, wouldn't you say, Matt?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think once we knew she was going to work in the charity space, it felt like it naturally was leading us to uh, something that could work in the sort of workplace comedy space. The other thing was, you know, really everything started with the character of Molly. And I think we felt like for that character to progress and for that character to change and for you to like her for doing that and for her wanting to do that, we needed to inhabit the rest of the world and this workplace with people who are gonna push her and be different from her. Uh, and so we needed a world where she had to be confronting those people who were challenging her. And it felt like the best place to do that was this workplace and this charity. You know,
2: Having, having both worked on Parks and Rec, What is it about a workplace of theoretically optimistic people trying to change either a small town or a world that makes for good comedy?
3: Uh, It makes it more challenging to write, I think. (laughs) I think it really, like, I, I think ultimately... Uh, it it comes from a place of, to me, it's the kind of people we are, which is, I think we're both relatively optimistic people. And despite a lot of shit that's going on, we do believe that people (laughs) have inherent good in them and can come together and solve things. And it does just fit with the workplace format. I think there's, I don't know, there's, to me, there's something really rewarding and, and, you know, it, it sort of, makes you feel better about the world when you see people who are very different from each other, who come from different backgrounds, who have lived such disparate lives, being able to communicate with each other, share you know, what their lives have been like and then work together to to, to fix something. And, you know, obviously we did that on Parks and Rec on a very small scale and a very, you know, sort of granular, uh, you know, local government scale. But in this show, it's, it's there, there are commonalities in the sense that these these are very different people, and can they find common ground? And I think again, like like Hubbard said, uh, we thought that was interesting for a character who had been in a bubble to step outside that bubble and talk to regular people. Because I like sometimes that scares me. Like you know, it's like who are you hanging out? With? Like do you want to talk to people who are just exactly like you all the time? And a workplace is a place where you might meet people who are maybe not so similar to you. So that that's that's been part of it for us.
0: I think it's also really just for a for a show to have legs it's nice to give people a noble goal that's essentially impossible right no no (laughs) one can fix a town (laughs) no one can save the world but to try to do that and not give up in the face of everything you're facing and all the challenges you'll face is like that's just like an engine that can keep you going for a long time you that's, know
3: yeah that's a great way of putting it it's, it's sisyphus pushing the rock of the hill but well, the hill is unbelievable i mean forget <laughs> yeah. like mission impossible or like doing the death star run or whatever they had to do in top gun maverick it's like this is saving the world <laughs> it's like forget <laughs> dropping a missile in a, like a little box like from your from your from your f-14 or whatever like this is this is much harder <laughs> And yet
2: in the first couple episodes, it's made clear that while they could potentially save the world, they are starting with a Southern California perspective. How specific did you guys feel like you wanted to get in terms of the specific problems that are out your door if you look out your door in Los Angeles any day of the week?
3: Yeah, I think that was a real sort of uh, thing we had to talk about a lot in the writer's room. And by the way, this actually applies to, I think, shows like Parks and Rec and 30 Rock as well, where the actual task or, or think of the show The Office, right? How many of their episodes were about selling paper? It's like It's like you don't really want to see that many meetings about paper. Ultimately, you want to see the relationships between the characters. That being said... You also don't want to totally throw away the world you're in. So, for us, it was a balance of look, we don't want to do a show that's just about the paperwork and phone calls of getting certain initiatives finished. You know, the meetings, with, you know, and we do have some of that in the show, but we thought we'd focus more so on the relationships between the characters and what their goals were outside of work while still keeping it in that workplace setting Um, we do uh, you know later on the season leave the workplace and go to you know travel the world and all that stuff Um, and that was kind of a specific worldview difference between the characters of Molly and Sophia you know Sophia you know we read some books about this kind of stuff and uh, you know one one kind of point of view is stay local give money to people who have been doing the work and who understand the communities they're doing the work in. And then there's kind of this larger kind of, you know, big foundation thing, which is like, we're going to fix it with technology, or we're going to parachute into a community that we don't know anything about, but we think we can solve it because we're smarter than you. And look, you know, there's, there's, pros and cons, and there's 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 arguments to be made. Obviously, there are things that can be fixed by pouring money into technology. We're not saying that that's impossible, but um, one of the things we want to make clear is that Sophia's viewpoint was to stay local and, and, and provide resources for people who understand the local community, which does make sense in some way.
2: Let's talk a bit about the ensemble and starting with Maya. I, I've always had kind of the theory that Maya Rudolph may... Her problem may be that she can do too many things well and that that leaves people kind of frozen. There's a paralysis by analysis of her skill set and you just don't know which of her skills you want to showcase. As you built out this comedy, what things that you find funny about Maya Rudolph did you want to make sure got out front and center here?
0: We've talked about this a lot. I mean, we did Forever with her, which was a little bit more like in the dramedy space. And I think we knew that this role would lend itself to bigger comedy, not broader comedy, but just bigger, you know, um, sequences and set pieces for her. Uh, And it felt like, wow, if you have like one of the great, you know, I think the greatest comedic actress like currently working, like you should use her to do that sometimes. Right. But we didn't want the show to spin off into broadness. So we also wanted to make sure we were grounding everything in the personal as well as just like, this is a show about a billionaire. Yes, but it's also a show about a woman going through a divorce. Uh, And that I think will humanize her and she can do that really well. So actually I think we knew for this show, we needed to use all of those things that she can do. And I think Alan has said this and I agree. It's like most people can do neither of those things. Many people can do one of them really well, but like only Maya can just jump between those two things from scene to scene, so we are hopefully using all of the uh, you know all of her all of her skills uh, in this role. Uh,
1: you know, let's talk about the rest of the cast here. Uh, Michaela J. Rodriguez, one of my favorites from Pose, was often funny on that show, but I, I wouldn't say that she. W- that was a, a comedic performance. But what did you see, in, you know, in, in, as far as her comedic strengths in terms of how you cast her and what you wanted to do with the character in a larger sense and what she brought to that role?
3: Yeah, absolutely. That was a very tricky role to write originally because we, we knew we wanted this foil to Maya's character, Molly. Um, but it was difficult to think of someone who could sort of hold her own in scenes with Maya, especially when this character has so much wealth, so much status, so much power. What we really found when we cast Michaela J, when her name came up, it was like, wait, we get it. It really unlocked a lot for us, specifically that she could go into a room with Molly and just have this impregnable moral authority, you know. It just felt like you want to re- win her respect. And Hubbard has made this joke before, but if you meet Michaela J, you immediately get the feeling that I just want this person to like me. Like, literally, that is that is when you meet her, you are like, I just, I something about her. She's there is something just about her presence, her vulnerability combined with her strength. Like, you that those are things you can't teach, you can't even really put in the writing. There is something about her ability to match the power of someone with wealth and status with the power of integrity and the power of your principles really like that, that is what that character is based on. And what we found, you know, we did the premiere last night and, and at the screening, you know, Michaela J killed because it was, it's that classic straight person. Like, you know, that, that, that literally like just saying how she feels, being blunt and not taking any shit from Molly. Like that is the dynamic. And so, Over the course of the season, that's the foundational axis the show is built on is sort of Molly spinning, 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 Thinking she can get away with stuff, breaking moral codes, and Sophia being like, "No, that's absurd. Like you can't get away with that," and just calling her on her shit. Um, and so that was the dynamic we developed, and we really love the scenes between the two of them. They're both such capable actresses, and I think I think Michaela was excited to do comedy, and we were like, "She was like, I don't do comedy, but you I, like, I'm trusting you guys." And so um, that was what we were trying to do for her.
1: You know, and I, I've, as someone who's been lucky enough to interview her a few times f- for Pose, you know, she is very, everything that you said is, is very true. You, you the, within the first minutes of talking to her, you just want to feel like you're, you're best friends with her because she's just so inviting and she, you know, is very unlike a lot of other, a, a, a lot of other actors that, that I've interviewed over the years and that it's, there's this, this inherent sincerity that she doesn't take a single fucking thing for granted. It's incredible. Um, the other thing that I, that I thought was really special about this show is, at least in the early episodes, and I don't want to spoil anything as it goes on, but maybe you guys can talk to this, but this is just a, a, a character in the show th- that you're writing because, she, as you said, this is a character with integrity, right? And the fact that that this is a transgender actress Isn't even a big deal. It's just, we just cast the best person for the part. And I think that is worth celebrating in in, in our current uh, day and age, especially during Pride Month, when we're seeing a lot of LGBT characters kind of come into the spotlight. And we obviously see what's happening in the the real world with don't say gay bills, etc. So can you talk a little bit about why you kind of wanted to subvert that expectation?
3: yeah absolutely and 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 by the way we got i think one of the biggest compliments uh, you know of the night last night was someone coming up to, to to me and just saying you know a lot of shows talk about diversity or there's a lot of talk about that with networks and studios and all this stuff he's like to me this was the best example of diversity because Obviously, the show is diverse, but I wasn't thinking about it. Wow, this is a diverse show. It's just like these are the characters; these are people. When you walk down the street in L.A. or you step into an office, this is what it looks like. And it turns out these characters are really funny and interesting. We hope, and certainly the actors playing them are as well. And that was that was the whole thing. And we actually had a conversation with, with Michaela J. It was like, you know, do you do you want to make this character trans? Do you want to talk about it in the show? Like, do we want to talk about? You know, you know, does, is that a huge? part of who you are and who you want to represent she's like I don't think so and, and we wanted to make sure she was comfortable with the choice as well so we talked to her about it and we think that the character is unbelievably compelling and it's, you know, we cast her because she projected this authority with, like you said, an inherent warmth. Like that was what was important to us. And so um, I don't know. I, I just find the two of them interesting together in scenes. And she's funny later on in the season. Uh, she has some dating stories that, that that we really enjoyed writing and watching her perform. So, um, yeah, that was, that was the big thing for us. And same thing for, for all the other characters. It was, it, was, it was like a lot of it was kind of, you know, race neutral, you know, orientation neutral, just kind of casting really funny people in our opinion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking about the rest of the cast, you know, Joel Kim Booster is obviously being celebrated right now for Fire Island, which he also wrote and starred in. Then you've got Nat Faxon, who's an Oscar winning writer who is uh, Molly's love interest. You know, what does it do to the energy of an ensemble when you have co-stars who have this kind of sort of content generating expertise?
0: It's so great because if there's anything Alan and I can't figure out, they will pave it over on set (laughs) because they are so, if we write a joke, that's not good. Any of those guys up and down, all five of them will just think of something that is better in the moment. I mean, I should say this Joel Kim booster is naturally one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life and is so fast with like improvs that he can come up with, like it is almost like inhuman. Like he is so good at that. They're all good at that, but he will do it over and over and over for five takes in a row. And I'm just like sitting, watching the monitors being like, this is so much funnier than what we wrote. I kind of hate (laughs) this guy right now. How is he doing (laughs) this? Um, Yeah, but it's like, that is what you get. And I think Alan's right. It's like to cast, especially in a comedy, people who have sort of succeeded in that world like makes our lives uh so much easier you know it's great yeah
3: joel joel is like a supercomputer he's like a comedy supercomputer he's like okay I gotta know like literally a take will end he's like i got one more if you want one okay we'll do another i got one more like after the take he'll just say i have one more like, yeah, well yeah we'll shoot it just to get the alts and the you never know in the edit but the other thing on top of that i think that was really wonderful you know i remember we had a, a storyline in one of the episodes that was the three guys, you know, we did that a few times with, uh, basically Joel, Ron and, and Nat together. And, you know, all three of them, like you said, Nat, you know, came from the groundlings. He won an Oscar. Ron and Joel are uh, unbelievably established comedian standups for years and years. Um, so, you know, they should and would have the authority to, you know, bl- have their own sort of opinions on set and be sort of Whatever we we've all worked with people like that, but the humility was the other thing that was like really awesome, and the the trust that they displayed to each other towards us um, to just have fun uh, was was really great, and that that was some of the 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 most fun days we had with those three guys just joking around and like in in their B story or or whatever it was. uh, You know, we had a good time with them.
1: You know, and and you know, kind of wrapping up a little bit here. You know, the show was untitled for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about why "Loot" was the right title, and what were some of the other alternatives you kicked around?
0: Yeah, we uh, talked about the title of this a lot. Uh, another title we talked about was "Worth" because it had the double meaning uh, of her net worth, but also like who she is as a person. Uh, however we eventually landed on loot because obviously it's a reference to money, but I think it has the connotation of something that's being taken away or something that's being stolen. And I think it sort of planted a flag for us about some of the fears that Alan and I of writers have about uh, our economic situation now with inequality and the wealth gap. So I think we wanted to, Plant a little bit of a flag of saying this is not, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous here. You know, we're not celebrating people who have this amount of money, and it felt like uh, the right word to get that across.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I remember very early on we were banding around this title, and and I think I emailed maybe the studio and Hubbard, and it was like we could call it "Loot," and we had the song "Give Me the Loot," which is Notorious B.I.G. song, um, and. But lo and behold, years later when we made the show, the show was full of 90s <laughs> hip-hop and R&B. So so that was like very, really weirdly early on. We hadn't decided on the sound of the show at that point, but there is a song called Gimme the Loot by Biggie, and uh, the soundtrack is full of uh, Biggie and Diddy and Mace and Lil' Kim. So that was fun as well.
2: Well, I noticed that that, that there is Biggie in the show, but not Gimme the Loot. Why, why did you not find a way to get that in anywhere? Uh, maybe next
3: season. <laughs> you never know. That was like that was like a master none. It's like we played the beach house song like episode three or four, but we also thought about never doing it. I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, and before we officially, you know, wrap things up, there's a couple of other projects. Obviously, you guys are all very uh, prolific, but. You know, Alan. Little America was picked up for a second season in 2019. What's the latest uh, with that one?
3: We're working on it. Uh, our uh, one of our showrunners, Sean Hader, a uh, recent Oscar winner, uh, is is working on it. And and we saw her last night at the premiere. She was uh, so gracious to come out. And we we are working. We've finished shooting and we are editing the episodes and we're really excited. This this season, we feel like we have kind of a broader spectrum of stories. There's some that are a little bit more comedic and lighter. And we really wanted to lean into, you know, obviously there's going to be some immigrant stories that are a little bit more about struggle and, and, and tragedy, but there's some that are just lighter and we really wanted to focus on some stories that we're stories of triumph and we're stories of joy. We, you know, we have one about, a uh, Luke song who's a Korean hat maker. And we have one about, uh, a, a woman from Belize who makes bras, you know? So like, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a gamut this year. And, and we're really excited. Sean and Lee and Camille and Emily and I have, have been working on that show. And, and, uh, yeah, we're excited about that when We have, we have cuts of all the episodes and, and, uh, um, we'll be finishing them soon. But yeah, Sean is tearing her hair out and, and we're all going to we're all going to support her to try to get that show made. But it's so, been, it's done shooting. It's done shooting.
1: So possible for this year or next year? Uh,
3: I think it's possible this year, but with no release date yet. So uh, we'll let you know when we have one.
1: And then, you know, wrapping up a little bit here. What about the, we had the last time you were on the show was obviously for the new season of Master of None. Have you had any conversations about going back to that well at all?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a text thread with, with Aziz and Eric Werheim, and we talk about <laughs> ideas for the next season. Uh, my mom did say something very funny last night. She's like, yeah, this show's a lot funnier than Master of None season three. I'm like, mom, that was a drama. <laughs> it was like, that was a drama season. So I hope it's a little bit funnier than that. Uh, but you never know. Uh, yeah, Aziz and I are working on a couple things, and, and uh, we, we may still do another season. We'll see.
1: And we do like to close these interviews with the same question. What have you guys been watching and enjoying?
3: Other, obviously, than Top Gun Maverick, which I get the same I'm going to talk more about Top Gun Maverick. I just saw it like two nights ago. That's why it's on my brain. Also, just very good. Anyway, Hubbard, what do you, you want to go first? I love winning time.
0: Uh, I haven't <laughs> finished it, so don't tell me what happens, even though it's, I, I, you know what happens. But uh, I am not a sports fan. Don't care about sports. Don't care about anything. And there's something... <laughs> truly like fun about seeing a world that like you haven't thought about and i just think they do such a good job uh of just moving the story around such good performances the other show that i saw that i absolutely loved was the dropout uh i was just kind of in awe of that show it was incredible uh a great i thought example of telling a story over the course of 10 episodes but also making sure each episode was self-contained and had a beginning, middle and end. I think just as a writer, I really appreciate that. There's a lot of like dramas, especially that are just like this long novel that just keeps going. That show uh, written by a comedy writer, I believe uh, did such an excellent job of just encapsulating uh, in an hour, uh, telling these incredible stories that all tied together.
3: Yeah.
1: And that would be uh, written by Liz Merriweather, another former TV's Top podcast guest.
3: Yeah, shout out to Liz, man. She did New Girl, and then she does The Dropout. She has yeah, range. Incredible. She has range. Yeah. Um, this, this is, I think, maybe available on streaming now. I saw it in the theaters uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is a movie by the Daniels starring Michelle Yeoh. Um, really an unbelievable degree of difficulty. (laughs) Like, watching that movie, you cannot believe, you cannot fathom how this movie got made or that it works. Um, It's very maximalist in its style. I read actually a very kind of poignant thread um, from one of the Daniels, who, uh, Daniel Kwan, who's one of the co-directors, about how he always wanted to be a minimalist. Like, he loved, like he liked, like, Koganada, and like, you know, know, basically Ozu, and like, he could never do that. That's not how his brain works. So this movie is the opposite of that. It's it's so many, I, so many visuals, everything stuffed into this thing, and I believe they made it for something like twenty-five million dollars. But it, it looks like it's a hundred fifty million dollar movie. And I, again, I also read, I, I geeked out about this movie that they learned how to physically do the VFX themselves. And so, like, I just this vision of 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 Daniel, like, just kind of hunched over computer, figuring out the the visual effects. And but on top of all that, uh, uh, you know, on top of how amazing it looks and how fun it is, it's it's based on a really great emotional story and and it has that going through it so um, go see that movie you haven't seen it and and and, and uh, give it some support because it's just a, an original idea and that's so hard to get made these days so uh, yeah check it out
2: excellent thank you so much for joining us this week alan and matt we appreciate it thank you guys thank
1: you loot premieres friday june 24th on apple tv plus
2: number five
1: as usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone in God's Favorite Idiot for Netflix. Hulu wraps up Love, Victor, which is also going to stream on Disney+, Plus, where it was originally supposed to air and moved for a reason that was completely ridiculous. Season 2 of Rutherford Falls arrives on Peacock. Paramount+, Plus plays on with Players+. FX launches The Old Man, and Amazon has The Summer I Turned Pretty and The Lake. Dan, lots to pick from this week. What you got?
0: Phew. That's,
2: once again, every single week, um, too much TV and fat me. And that means a lot of missing out on things, including the things that in some cases I really enjoy. I haven't, for example, gotten to a second of the second season of Rutherford Falls, which is... Too bad, because I like Rutherford Falls very much. Um, Somewhat less too bad, I haven't gotten to God's favorite idiot on Netflix because Netflix didn't send out screeners. And once Netflix determines that critics are not relevant for the latest magnum opus from Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone, I turn around and say I don't care about the latest from Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone. Uh, Netflix has now done this a couple times in the past, basically, month. You might recall the Pentabaret from Mike Myers, which was released and released without any screeners. As Netflix simply says, we don't give a damn about reviews. Sometimes we're just going to program trash.
1: Yeah. Also, when you don't release when you when you don't do that, that's either a sign that you're protecting a spoiler, which we've seen with Obi-Wan or you know you're about to release a giant turd.
2: Yeah, this is this is 100 percent only in that second category there there is no chance whatsoever it is anything other than that and with obi-wan the spoilers were part of it but also lucas film is simply needlessly paranoid and well they they really don't care about whether or not they're getting coverage on tv's top five which is entirely their prerogative and we've now talked too much about god's favorite idiot uh So, whatever. Screw it. Um, Let's see. So, okay, I already have my review up for Players, which is Paramount Plus's new series from uh, Tony Yacenda and Dan Peralt, who are the creators of American Vandal. And American Vandal is truly one of my favorite completely and totally randomly surprisingly good shows of the past five or six years. It is a show that under no stretch of the imagination did I see coming. It's a show that I never would have guessed would it be actually good for one season. It's a show I never would have guessed somehow had a second season in it. And then it was one of those the first shows which actually kind of shocked people into discovering that Netflix was prioritizing shows that they owned over shows that they don't own because there was a solid... Two years where everyone was talking about, ooh, the quote unquote ratings for American Vandal are through the roof and people are talking about it. And it, you know, it won a Peabody. It was nominated for an Emmy and for Writers Guild Award. And Netflix said, yeah, we just don't want it. Uh,
1: So, And CBS Studios, of course, was like, we're going to shop this, but we can't shop it because like one day at a time with Sony, you have to wait a certain number of years or you have to get Netflix to release the hold on it. And then it was just by that point you're gonna have to pay to remarket it and the odds of you're getting the cast back together again. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. You've heard this record before.
2: <laughs> but it still remains it still remains a head scratcher, and that it remains a head scratcher that we've had to wait this long for their follow-up show. They they did They put their names on an actual documentary with humorous elements that was one of the uh, premiere week shows on Paramount+. Plus. That was for heaven's sake. And some people will maybe remember that that was actually a show that ultimately I ended up liking quite a bit. I I didn't like it at all for a couple episodes. And then once I kind of settled into what it was, or once it settled into what it was, I, I found myself really liking that show. And I have heard Nary a human being ever in the wild mentioned the existence of that show. I'm not sure if anybody else reviewed it when it came out, um, but, you know, sometimes Paramount can get publicity. Paramount Plus can get publicity for things, and sometimes they can't. That was definitely a a can't. Uh, so Players is very much in the American Vandal, very, very dry, very serious-minded, but also tongue-in-cheek. Uh, mockumentary world the focus is on an esports league playing league of legends uh one of many very very real things within the show and it kind of takes the format of a 30 for 30 documentary on espn more specifically the last dance the michael jordan chicago bulls documentary and there are moments in it that i chuckled it is wildly over Extended. It is 10 episodes. Most of the episodes are a hair over 30 minutes. American Vandal, I was already amazed that American Vandal in those seasons had enough juice to fill eight episode seasons. 10 episodes is too many. The thing that has to be acknowledged up front and center is I couldn't care less about the world of esports. And so probably that holds things back. On the other hand, I don't know that I thought that I was missing anything. So am I missing things? Of course I am, but I understood what I was watching because it is playing off of a genre that I know extremely well. I I know my ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, even if I don't know my esports world. So I understand the language they're using to talk about this thing, even if I don't know what this thing is. It's just not that funny. And more than that, unfortunately, there's the very, very clear sense that in effort to work with real participants. So to have actual Twitch streamers, to have actual online esports commentators, to use the name and images of a real game, etc., they're they're basically soft pedaling anything that would count as a real satire or a real critique. So if you might think that the world of gaming has issues with, say for example, sexism. Hypothetically, you would get no indication whatsoever of that from this. There is no critiquing of anything. There is no critiquing of the fandom in this world. There is no critiquing of, of online responses and toxicity. It it is, it is very, very down the middle and. Some of the things it does, it does extremely well. It really does, once again, take the mockumentary format very seriously. There are legitimate character arcs for most of the characters that, you know, some scripted shows would, would kill for. So, so good for them. But I, I didn't laugh very much. I was a little entertained. Mostly I was disappointed, not in a crushingly disappointed way. This is not an awful show by any stretch of the imagination. But if American Vandal and its two seasons felt like a minor miracle, uh this did not feel like a, a miracle. Unfortunately, it felt like simply a thing that was a little bit flatter than probably it should have been. And oh, well. Uh So continuing along, I really have mostly liked the four episodes of the summer that I turned pretty that I've watched. It is entirely a coming of age, you know, a coming of age show with a little bit of tear jerking, a little bit of comedy, some pretty beach seasons, uh, beach uh, scenery and stuff. And I, I found it likable in that way. It doesn't rewrite anything. It is, it is very much, it's kind of, um god i'm trying to think of which things are are. it's most clear it's a little bit like gilmore girls at times it's a little bit like outer banks only uh, from netflix only without the silly treasure hunting aspect of it the plot is basically a uh a girl and her mother um have they go every summer to a ritzy massachusetts beach where The girl's mother's best friend has a has a very nice house and they go every year and the girl has a crush on one of on one of the guys she sees every year. But the guy always overlooks her because she's plain and she has braces and stuff. But she comes back this summer. And as you might guess from the title of the series, she has turned pretty. And indeed, she has. What? Uh, <laughs> oh.
1: What? Sorry, are,
2: are, you, are you feeling as if I just spoiled the summer I turned pretty for you? No. I, I apologize. It is indeed about the summer that she turned pretty. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sensing that a lot of this is uh, not genuine. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's based no. on the knowledge. It's based on the novel series by Jenny Hahn and Jenny Hahn also served as showrunner on the show. And mostly why the show works, honestly, is because the casting of the main actress, uh, Lola Tung, who's a, a newcomer, she's really good and she's really good in the ways that the title of the show sort of suggests, you know, what is, what is the awkward stage where suddenly the person you were last summer is no longer the person you are. How do you move forward? How do you remain true to the things about yourself that you wish to remain true to? It, you know, it's it, this is not revolutionary stuff. But if you if you like coming-of-age stuff, and, for example, you thought Miss Marvel was good for the coming-of-age stuff, but you don't have any interest in the superhero stuff, this is all the coming-of-age stuff. And instead of becoming a superhero, the main character becomes pretty. So anyway, I watched four episodes of this, and, and I probably will make my way through the first season. Um, our colleague Angie is reviewing it, but I liked it enough that I will keep watching.
1: Plus, The Summer I Turned Pretty also scored an early season two renewal at Amazon. So there you go. Early confidence is always a good sign. True
2: story. Also premiering this week, I did talk about The Old Man on last week's podcast, but the simple sort of refrain or return is that I liked watching Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow and a lot of the cast, and I thought that it was actually well-directed. I thought it made some decent improvements over a book that I think is is fairly thin. I felt like it needed some improvement on certain aspects, particularly how little time John Lithgow and... Jeff Bridges are actually spending any time together, because darn it, I would like them to. Um, looking forward, I've watched a couple episodes of the new season of Umbrella Academy on Netflix, which premieres next week. Mostly, I was watching to see how they were going to handle Elliot Page and the main character in the series' transition from Vanya to Victor, which is a major plot point in this season. And the answer is it's done relatively smoothly. I, I think that Umbrella Academy has gotten completely usurped, pushed aside, whatever, by The Boys in the conversation of mismatched superhero team-ups for grown-ups, that kind of series. And I definitely feel as if there's a lot of buzz around the new season of The Boys and very little buzz around Umbrella Academy. I think at this point, it's entirely possible that I like Umbrella Academy more than I like the boys, and I think both are heavily flawed. I just kind of appreciate the sense of whimsy that Umbrella Academy has in its background. I think that it it does occasionally find non-cynical, non-ironic amusement in these characters and their world-saving situations in a way that I don't feel like the boys does so i i like the way it uses its soundtrack i think it is a very visually striking show and i think that more often than not the boys when it does visuals the concentration of the visuals is on what is the gross out thing that we're doing how can we make things explode in more creative ways what is an orifice that we can take the camera into to gross people out and make people laugh i at this point i've gotten bored with the boys doing that and i think that what the Umbrella Academy is doing is often significantly more amusing than that and sort of lighter, and I appreciate that. I do think both are heavily flawed shows, uh, but that's just one of those things. So to recap, I don't care about God's Favorite Idiot. Screw that. <laughs> um I liked the first season of Brotherford Falls. I haven't watched any of the second season, so who knows? Players was a a disappointment. For me, but not a crushing disappointment. And it's possible that if you are more invested in esports than I am, that Paramount Plus comedy may be on your radar. And if you like a little coming of age, summer beachy type show, uh, The Summer I Turned Pretty does what it does. Fairly well. It will not change your life. It will not revise your, your feelings about the genre. I do not expect that it will become the sort of strange and somewhat peculiar breakout that Outer Banks became for Netflix because some people apparently like the, uh, the, the treasure hunting aspect of that show. But anyway, I found it likable and I, I really liked the performances. So yeah, those are, those are some of the TV shows that I'm drowning in at the moment.
1: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporters TV podcast.
2: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because it does help spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We'd love to hear what's working, what isn't working, why you don't care that Leslie almost saw a no-hitter, et cetera, et cetera. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan. And just a reminder, next week, we're going to have a look at the best TV of the year so far. So lots to come up. Thanks for listening.